All right, let me go ahead and pray for us, and we'll get rolling. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you uh, for what it points to and how that is helpful, both in our personal lives and in our uh, attempts to minister, be it to our families or be it through the local church. Uh, We thank you, Father, that the Lord Jesus Christ is preeminent. We ask you, Father, to help us now as we dig into how to just better look at your word. We want to commit all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So you should have a packet. And if you turn this first page over, this is session two. You may or may not remember from last time that we're kind of going up a pyramid. With the base of the pyramid, it's, it's kind of a leadership pyramid. The base of the pyramid, the foundation of the pyramid is personal and family. And that's why we focused on elder qualifications last, last time. Um, we're now segueing to the second tier, which is exegesis, theology, and preaching, or teaching, or counseling, broad category for that. Um, and we're going to do that in two parts today, and then when I'm back in December, I think it's the 10th, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and then next semester, we'll go to the next two tiers, which are leadership and management, and then finally at the very top, shepherding, evangelism, ministry in general. So, And we're not going to feel in any way pinched like we can't talk about something from the previous time. It's a looser uh, arrangement. And this particular topic segues nicely between personal, family, and doctrine. Because understanding the Christocentricity of the Bible uh, first and foremost benefits us because we're able to see Christ. If we're becoming what we behold, then the better able we are to behold Christ in all of Scripture, the the better our pursuit of holiness, the more efficient, I think we could say, our transformation. But we also are better able to teach those that we're trying to instruct, starting with family, whether it's siblings, kids, um, or in a church context, whether you're a small group leader or you're teaching a Sunday school or some other format. Uh, perhaps teaching in the Christian school. That could be a context in which this could be applied as well. So what we're going to do today, first of all, I want to go over the assignment, and I'm hoping that you were not uh, discouraged or overwhelmed trying to read this little book. Uh, Your Old Testament sermon (laughs) needs to get saved. It's a good snarky little title, isn't it? Um, But... uh, Um, The next reading assignment's a little tougher, but you have a choice. Uh, You can can read uh, Religious Affections by Edwards, if you're a real man, um, or uh, if need be, I'm really just kidding there. Edwards is hard to read. These guys are hard to read because they were Latin gurus. Owen, someone said Owen dreamed in Latin. And, and Latin has, and, and, and Greek are very, they're highly inflectional languages. 
So, you know, you get these sentences, for instance, in, in, in the New Testament, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 is one sentence. Um, and modify, you know, modifying clauses are modified by other modifying clauses. And, uh, you know, you get the NIV version of it, and they break that into like 74 sentences. And I'm being a little snarky myself. But it's just a different level of sophistication. So you're coming from Latin, and you write in English with a Latin mindset, and it makes the prose cumbersome. Um, Sam Storms, who is a, a Jonathan Edwards <coughs> devotee, took Religious Affections, which Edward said was his greatest work, his magnum opus. He took that work and, and you know, kind of did it for dummies. And, uh, and I like Storms' interpretation. I've read Edwards. I've compared Storms to Edwards. I think, I don't see anything that I think he's really missed for what it's worth. Um, and it's a, it's a much, I'd much rather you read Storms than start to read Edwards and just get discouraged and not read anything. So, uh, and uh, Storms is shorter. He does a lot of condensing um, for what it's worth. We're going to be talking next time about conversion in our exegesis theology preaching. Um, if the Bible's about Christ, then to me the next question is, how do we apprehend Christ and what does it look like particularly? Now, you're relatively familiar with the doctrine of justification by faith alone. We will talk about that, but we'll be pressing into what does it look like when somebody actually is justified by faith alone. You know the old saying, uh, the justification is by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. That's right. And so we're going to be pressing into that. That's what Edwards was doing. He was pressing into the nature of true conversion. He was actually attempting to avert in the future what had happened in the First Great Awakening. He wrote Religious Affections because in his mind, the enthusiasts, the new lights, uh, whom he was largely identified with, in his mind, they had killed the awakening. Uh, and so he's trying to determine, well, what does it really look like when a soul is awakened? What are the signs that someone has received gracious or religious or holy affections? What is the essence of true religion and what does it look like? Um, and so I personally think it's the best work that's ever been written that I'm aware of uh, on helping us to understand the nature of true conversion. And for those of you that are married and have kids, who, who has kids? Who's married and has kids? Okay, so the majority of you. I'm not sure there's a work that's more applicable to your role as a father, trying to help your kids understand, especially growing up in the church. It's, it's easy to kind of, uh, you know, live in the seams, so to speak, and never actually be uh, confronted, uh, especially if you're a good kid. And you know what I mean by that. You know, you're, you're compliant, you're not, you're not outwardly rebellious. Um, and so I think this work is well worth, I'm selling. I'm selling, because you're, you're gonna not want to read this. And, uh, or you're gonna start enthusiastically, then you won't want to read it. Um, 
and I want you to push through that. And like I said, at least read Signs of the Spirit. And that's worth a purchase for, your, for those of you that are married for your wives. Um, we make all the wives that go through our NETS program read Signs of the Spirit. In fact, we're discussing it as couples this coming Friday. We have a couples meeting. I leave Kansas City on Thursday, and then we have a couples meeting on Friday, and they've all had to, they've all had to read at least Signs of the Spirit. The men who are all seminary grads say, can we read Signs of the Spirit? I say, no. You have to read Religious Affections, but your wives can. And some of the wives are reading Religious Affections. Uh, they want to try to, you know, pound through it. And uh, so anyways, now I've given another assignment. I think this could be a short assignment and a fun assignment, which is to take Genesis 22 and... Um, you, 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 this is a tricky one because I've given you a paper in this handout. If you look, oh, two pages in. Uh, it's entitled Impressive but Inadequate. What a dangerous thing to say about John Calvin's hermeneutic. Uh, but that is what I said. And, uh, um, in this paper, I'm essentially comparing Calvin's hermeneutic with a guy named Origen, whose hermeneutic really controlled right up to the time of Calvin and, and influenced all the bigwigs. He, he influenced Luther more than he influenced Calvin, but even Calvin was influenced, even though Calvin and his institutes uh, takes more pot shots at Origen than anyone else other than the papists. Um, so he did not like Origen. Uh, he was on an anti-Origen, anti-allegorical campaign. Uh, but I compared their hermeneutics, and I compare it regarding Genesis 22. So if you're going to do this assignment, I would suggest that you do it based on this class uh, and before you read this paper. Um, that's just my suggestion. Try, try, you know, give it, give it a ride. Take it out and give it a, give it a ride. The things we're going to talk about today about how you follow the trajectories to the New Testament, really doing a lot of what David King is talking about in this book. And then you can appeal to the answer key, my paper. Um, that's a joke. I'm just joking. See, do you understand what I'm saying? Does that make sense? It's just a suggestion. I encourage you to do it. It might be the single most important thing that you do uh, in this whole six-session seminar because it's going to be forcing you to, to do that. We're going to do a little bit of that with Genesis 1, 2, and 3. King did a little bit of that in his book, but we're going to do a little bit workshopish here today in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and I'm recommending you just try to do the same thing with Genesis 22 and then read my paper, which will also give you a, a helpful kind of historical sense of the way this thing hermeneutically has evolved. Any questions at this point? You with me? Are you following what I'm saying? Okay. So I'm suggesting two assignments. First of all, uh, religious affections, and then second of all, uh, trying to do Genesis 22, 1 to 24, 
identifying the trajectories. I've used Jonah 1 and Jonah 2, and I've, ref I've referenced where they go through, but Jonah 1, what happened in Jonah 1? We'll already start working the territory here. Does anybody remember, can you think historically, what were the salient points in, jo in, in Jonah chapter 1? Anyone want to give that a crack? God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. He did. Tell him to repent, or that judgment's coming unless they repent. That's right. That's the start. There's a lot more in Jonah chapter 1. Yeah. He flees. He flees. Mm -hmm. Keep going. Yes, keep going. What happens in the midst of his journey as he's fleeing? Pretty cool stuff. You're in Genesis 2. I want you to stay in Genesis 1. There's a storm. Yes. What, what, what goes on as these sailors and as Jonah reckon with this storm? Yes. And then the sailors came down and got him and were like, hey, we're going to sink. We need to cast lots to find out who caused wherever God to be angry at Yes. Him. And then Jonah, after the lot falls on him and basically calls him out and says, I serve the God of earth and of the sea. And they're like, why did you disobey this God? <laughs> All right. So what's established there? That they're being judged because of Jonah's disobedience, right? All right, and then Jonah has a proposal. What proposal does Jonah make? Yes, which, by the way, these, these pagan sailors, they're pretty noble-minded. They're like, no, we can't do that. We're not going to do that. But Jonah insists, and they throw him over, the one who was asleep in the boat now is thrown into the sea. And what happens? The sea becomes calm. There's all kinds of stuff we could do with this. But again, we see that God is treating them in relation to Jonah. They are being represented by Jonah. And in fact, Jonah, can we say it this way, appeased. The wrath of God. His sacrifice. Are you starting to, to see? Now here's how we're going to save our Old Testament sermon. Because we're not just talking about cool stuff. Stuff kids really like. By the way, this is why this is so relevant. Kids eat this stuff up. No pun intended. And they, you can then get to the gospel dealing with difficult abstractions like imputation. Adam's imputation. I think Adam's imputation is there. And then obviously Christ's representative role on behalf of us is also there in Genesis 1. And that's why I said the trajectory takes you to Matthew 5, 12 to 21. If you're really interpreting Jonah 1 in its canonical context, that's how King describes it, you're going to see there's a lot more going on. We've got this representative principle going on. Adam, through the disobedience of the one, the many were made sinners. Through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. There, there's Romans 5. Um, how about Jonah 2? Someone already jumped in on that. What happens in Jonah 2? 
the belly of the fish for three days. Yes. And three days and... Yeah, three days and three nights. Those are not uh, insignificant details, are they? And then what happens? He spit up on dry land. He spit up on dry land, that's right. And we know from Matthew 12, again, following these trajectories, we know from Matthew 12, the Romans 5 is not explicit. There's nowhere in the New Testament that I know of that compares, that talks about Jonah from an imputational point of view. Um, but the reference in Matthew 12 is explicit. And what, and what does Jesus say there? He'll give them no signs except the sign of Jonah, who was in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. So too the Son of Man will be in the belly, the belly of the whale, belly of the fish. I think it had to be a whale. What other, what other fish could it be? Maybe a whale shark? I don't know. I don't know. But uh, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so too the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights and will rise from the dead. So again, you, you just can't preach Jonah 1 or Jonah 2, and Jonah 3, I would argue, without going to its fulfillment in Christ. That's an example of what I'm wanting you to do with Genesis 22. Like I said, we'll look at Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Now, let's take a few minutes to talk about well, you know what I want to do first? Because I want to be sensitive to, to the fact that we're segueing from last week and we were talking about how we're holy, how we can make progress if we're not already at elder qualifications and, and get those. I think those are qualifications that are a good standard for any man, even if he doesn't aspire to be an elder. Um, this morning's sermon, which most of you heard, what did you take away from that in terms of your own progress in holiness? What were some of the takeaways there? And, and maybe fodder for questions or further discussion. We won't spend a lot of time here, but before we go into this history of hermeneutics, I just thought it would be appropriate to just ask that question. Tell me your name. I, I know I'm not going to get Caleb to know everyone's name. Caleb, all right. So I think uh, just evaluating where you are placing your hopes in this earthly existence, where, where do we, and again, as you said in your sermon, not that you know, hoping for things is in and, in and of itself a wrong thing, right. uh, but that must be subservient to our, our final hope, which is in Christ and um, his atonement for our sins. Yes, yes. Yeah, another way to say it is loving lots of things in and of itself is a good thing, but if my love for Christ is not preeminent, such that uh, he could say things like, uh, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, that about covers it, doesn't it? And even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He cannot be a Christian. Um, I think the hope and love ideas are parallel. I think they're the same thing. To hope preeminently, chiefly in Christ is to love Christ uh, chiefly. So good, good, Caleb. What else? Takeaways? Uh, maybe questions? Anything at all in your own personal 
walk with the Lord. along those lines and, and just having that relational mindset yes our... yeah I was trying to get away from hope just being like, part of our eschatology yeah. uh, and and you know not be it just simply our systematic theology mm-hmm. but have it be personal mm-hmm. have it be relational I'm not just hoping for Christ uh, because I know a bunch of cool things are going to happen when he comes. Um, it's kind of like, uh, you know, when your boys go to college, you know, you pretty much just become the bank. And I'm not saying that they don't love you. Um, and I love my boys. We have good relations. They're both believers. But, you know, it's pretty much, hey, Dad, I need some money. You know, and, and, and I'm willing to be that kind of role because that's part of what fathers do. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about really longing for the person. Um, the hope is a hope to see him. Um, we're longing to be with God. Uh, we're longing to see Christ. We're, will, we're longing to be one with him and with the Father um, through the Spirit. So I think that's an important aspect. And I think you should ask yourself this question, gentlemen. And that is, is my heart tender for Christ? Um, my, I have a son-in-law who was sweet on one of my daughters. And uh, she was nervous that he wasn't a believer. And so I took him out to lunch one day. He, he had parent, his parents were missionaries. I mean, he had all the, all the credentials, so to speak. We went out to lunch one day, and I was just asking him questions, trying to understand him. And I said, you know, I said, let's say his name was Fred. I said, Fred, do you ever remember a time where you thought you were in love with Jesus Christ? Uh, and, I, and I knew that was kind of a, uh, that was kind of a, a, a subjective question, not exactly a, a crisp criteria. But he said, you know, I can't even relate to that statement. And that was, a, that was a real clarifier for him, for him to realize that he wasn't a Christian. And maybe two months later he came to faith and, and we baptized him. And uh, I don't know, three years later he married my daughter. He's now an elder at our church. And uh, mm-hmm. so I think you're asking yourself that question. And you're, you're really doing the same thing with your wife, aren't you? For those of you that are married, the, the, the death now is when you don't really feel that romantic, and I'm not talking just about sex, where you don't feel that, that fondness for your wife. And as that's starting to dwindle, you're in trouble. You're, you're, you're open season for the devil to put something else or someone else in its place. And so we're continually working at stoking the fires of our fondness for our spouse and for God. By the way, 
How do you do that? Practically speaking, whether it's marriage, it could be your relationship with your children, and then ultimately with God. How do you stoke those fires so that you don't grow, I don't know, business-like in your relationship with these people that we love and with the God that we're called to love. What are some ways to do that, to stoke those fires? Any practical ideas? I always tell, I always tell my wife to leave. Is it Gordon? Yeah. yeah. <coughs> I always tell my wife to leave for a couple of weeks and then she comes back and really reports to me. Okay. <laughs> I could see how that could work, though. I love seeing her face. Yeah. It's like, oh, man, I really miss her so bad. When I see her every day, you kind of get stale in that. So when she's gone for any time, and you use that example today in your sermon. Yes. Yeah, yeah, because you're forced to realize you're kind of taking her for granted a little bit. And when she was gone, that highlighted that idea. Other ways to stoke those fires, ultimately for God. But I think it's helpful to use a human analogy um, to to see it. Caleb? Spending time together. Yes, but if you're moving in the wrong direction, that can actually facilitate that movement because when we're moving away from a person usually the things about that person that might not be on our top 10 list are getting highlighted and even if it's not a bitterness there's a ho-humness there's a yeah whatever kind of an attitude so to fight it yes go ahead Jordan Yes. 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 And what is it about the beginning, whether it's our relationship with our spouses or our relationship with the Lord? What was characteristic at the beginning of those relationships? I think there's a strong parallelism between those two things. Discovery. Yes, we we were discovering, and what was the fruit of that discovery? Were we discovering a lot of negative things about the person? I mean, could they do any wrong in those days? Rose-colored glasses. That's right. We had rose-colored glasses. It doesn't mean that there was nothing about them that was less than exhilarating. Um, But we were sort of putting all those things aside. And our focus was on all the things that we really liked about the person. So this, this gets easy when you start thinking about the, the practical steps. If you're drifting a little in your affections, let's say for your spouse, what you need to do is pull it back to all those things that you appreciate. And you're kind of doing it to the exclusion of all the things that maybe are not your first choice. Because no marriage is perfect. No couple likes everything about each other. Um, but we can choose. We have the freedom to decide that we're going to focus on the things that first attracted us mm-hmm. and, and the things that we really appreciate uh, about our spouses. Um, 
boy, oh boy, I've got a list. I, I just wrote a, wrote a list. I got it right on my bulletin board of all the attributes of my wife that I really appreciate. And if I'm not careful, I'm a pretty, I'm critical. And if I'm not careful, boy, I can come up with 10 or 15 things I don't like just like that. Um, and I'm, I'm not necessarily feeling negative about them. It's just that I'm observing them. Um, but it easily moves into the negative. So we're focusing on the positive things. And I would even add this, we're focusing without being over-baking this, we're focusing on praising our spouses for those things. We're working hard to say, you know, this is something I really appreciate about you. I really appreciate you know, how you listen to me, or I really appreciate just, my wife buys all my clothes. I hate clothes shopping, I hate stores. She just says, I'll buy all that stuff for you. And, and that's fine, I, I don't really care as long as it fits. I just don't really care. And I really appreciate that, you know. Um, now let's take it to the Lord. This is much easier because there's no negatives, you know. You don't have to fight. Uh, now, there could be a negative in that you don't like the way a certain situation has worked out. And instinctively, we know God is sovereign over those things. And if we're not careful we might start to drift because we don't like the way we're being treated. Um, I've been struggling with that over the last few years where I'm aware that I'm not really bringing to the surface some things I don't like. But nevertheless, my affections toward the Lord were a little dampened. So you got to break through that and say, okay, now wait a minute, wait a minute. Whatever those things are, easy or hard, We've got good grounding to say that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. My legitimacy as a son of God is validated by these hard things because the Lord's disciplining me. So that can actually be an attraction. You know, the Lord loves me so much. You know, the old severe mercy idea. He loves me so much that he's brought that into my life. Um, and if the son learned obedience through the things that he suffered, how much more do I need hardships, difficulties, trials in order to conform me to his image? Um, so you've got your list on the bulletin board, all the things that are attractive to you about the God of the Bible. Uh, and I think you're rehearsing those on a daily basis. By the way, that's one of the reasons I'm encouraging you, and I think I encourage you to do this last time, to use the Psalms as devotional fodder. Because the Psalms are, they're the most relational book in the Bible. And we're talking to God. You know, the psalmist is talking to God, text. Christ is talking to God, Christ. I'm going from David King here. And then me, I'm talking to God. I'm seeing how ultimately this is fulfilled in Jesus because Jesus prayed the Psalms. We know that. He was praying the Psalms when he was on the cross. And that instructs me as to how to talk to God. But there's all sorts of praise in the Psalms. So if I'm having trouble just like, why, why am I crazy about God? Read the Psalms. 
I don't have to go back to my systematic theology. It's all right there. It's all right there. And so I'm stoking the fires of my love for God by rehearsing all of his blessings, but more importantly, rehearsing who he is. I want to love the benefactor and not, and not the benefits. I want to love the benefactor who has provided all of these benefits, but my love is for him. Is that, is that helpful, trying to just work that muscle? Uh, it's the way we protect our hearts, watch over our hearts with all diligence. All right, with that said, then let's take a few minutes to look over uh, the history of hermeneutics. This may be a little too esoteric, but I still thought it was probably worth it. Um, Early on, Origen, I think, is a second century, third century uh, father of the church, and he's famous for being associated with the Alexandrian school of hermeneutics, hermeneutics which is over and against the, the, the school in Antioch. Um, when you think of the Alexandrian school, Origen is clearly its most famous disciple. When you think of the Antioch school, Probably John Chrysostom is its most famous uh, uh, promoter. But the Alexandrian school carried the day, and it was very allegorical. If, if you read Origen, he is going to break things into three basic uh, interpretive uh, layers. He's looking at the literal sense, he's looking at the moral sense, and he's looking at the spiritual sense. And it's, it's in this moral and spiritual sense that things can get pretty wild with origin. You know, so, you know, if he's doing Genesis chapter 1, you'll see this in the paper that I wrote. And he's talking, he's interpreting creeping creatures, uh, creeping, crawling creatures. That's the literal sense. But when he starts getting moral, he's going to say, well, what are the creeping, crawling creatures in our lives? You know, what are the venomous serpents that are infecting our souls and most respectable interpreters that I know would would never feel like that was a legitimate jump morally uh, to 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 us uh, from Genesis chapter 1 and the creeping crawling creatures um, but nevertheless his way of looking at scripture including the spiritual idea which Origen was very Christocentric. He was very Christocentric, even if some of the ways of getting there might have seemed a little painful. Um, that carried the day. And probably in the Reformation, it was Luther who most strongly adhered to a more Origen-like approach to the Scriptures. Uh, Luther's, for instance, his, his comments on the Psalms are very Christological in contrast to Calvin. And the whole Middle Ages, which resulted in the Roman Catholic Church. By the way, when did the Roman Catholic Church start? Just to keep us sharp on church history. It's a little bit of a trick question. They would like you to think that it started from the beginning, the Catholic Church, uh, that it started with the Apostle Peter. Yes, sir? Just venturing a guess, was it Constantine? No. Even though they would, that would be significant because we have the Nicene Creed that came from that, uh, which both Protestants and Catholics alike adhere to. 
Any other guesses? When did the Roman Catholic Church, not to be confused with the Catholic Church, when we recite the Apostles' Creed, uh, we refuse to give them that word. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic. A lot of Protestants say universal. I don't want them to have that word. They can have Roman Catholic, but they don't get the word Catholic. Um, No, way too early, way too early. That's Constantine, that's Constantine. Well, let me ask you this question, and this is a good one for witnessing to Catholics. I'm on airplanes all the time, and sometimes I'm sitting next to Catholics, and I'll, we'll get drawn back and forth, and I'll say, can I ask you a question? I'm a Protestant, you're a Catholic. What is your take on the essential difference between classic Protestantism and, Ro and classic Roman Catholicism. You've got to throw out all the, the wacko liberal versions. You've got to stay down the main, the main pikes. So if I ask you that question, what's the essential difference? That word essential is, is critical between classic Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. What, what would you say? And this helps us understand when the Roman Catholic Church started. Think it's an issue of ultimate authority. I'd say no, not the essential difference. That is a difference, um, not as big as you'd think, but it is a difference. As our pastor told us, it's that by faith alone is where the problem comes in. Okay. Versus, so that's Protestantism. What would be? What's your name, by the way? Brandon. Brandon and Zach. Zach. I'm sorry. So, Brandon, what would be the, Ca the Roman Catholic response to that? Um, yeah, that's where I struggle. Because um, you're, you're on it. You're on it. Um, how the Catholic mindset is. Um, Can anyone? It's, it's that, and we had this conversation earlier, it's a difference it's between worse. justification and sanctification, like a confusion of justification and sanctification. Yes, how if you... If you zoom out a little bit, can anyone, is it Brandon? Mm -hmm. Can anyone add to what Brandon's saying there? He's saying exactly what he's saying. His faith, he, you're saying. Well, he said the Catholic was by, or the Protestant was by faith alone. But what, by the way, what, what is by faith alone? Yes, or we could, we could broaden that and say, how do we receive the merit of Christ? How, how is... God's justification conferred. Are you talking about the difference between imputation and infusion? No, although that is a difference. But we're really broad, it's broader. And the question is, how, how is forgiveness conferred to the sinner? And through the church, yeah, through the Pope. Yes, but actually more pointedly through the sacraments. Oh, the, sacraments. the sacramental system is what really distinguishes Roman Catholicism. It's not, it's not priests, it's not a pope, it's not Mary. These are all things we disagree on. Um, it's not ecclesiology. Um, it's really how grace is conferred to the sinner, how saving grace, how justification is conferred to the sinner. Um, and we say that it's through faith alone or faith apart from the works of the law. They've got a sacramental system. If they anathematize 
that, even though Vatican II's confused that uh, anathema, um, because we're now, I was sitting with a guy, a priest, on an airplane who is a part of the order of St. Pius, which is a reaction to Vatican II. They've repudiated Vatican II. They want to go back to Vatican I and before. And, uh, of course, in Vatican II, Protestants are, are described as separated brethren. Now, that's a lot better than being anathematized in the Council of Trent, like the difference between heaven and hell. So this guy and I were going on and on, and he could tell I knew enough to be dangerous. And uh, so we're going back and forth. And so I said, so you reject Vatican II completely? Yep, absolutely. Um, of course, they don't like Pope Francis at all. And I said, well, you know, in Vatican II, I attained the designation of a separated brethren. <laughs> and I said, so have I lost that in your, in your thinking? He said, he got, it got a little funny at that point. He said, well, well, yeah, he said. <laughs> and I said, so am I back to being anathematized? He's like, yeah. And I said, well, isn't that funny? I said, here we both are. You think I'm condemned, and I think you're condemned. And uh, we're having this nice, friendly conversation. And uh, he thought that was kind of funny, too. Yeah, that's the difference. That's the essential difference. And that didn't come about, that sacramentalism didn't come about really until the time of Thomas Aquinas. And it got formalized in the Lateran councils. The Lateran councils occurred on uh, the late 1100s, early 1200s. I think the fourth ladder in a council occurred in 1215. And the sacraments are being put in place as the means to receiving grace. See, that's why it's so important that a Catholic, at least in the old days, go to church every Sunday. What happens at Mass? They receive grace. That's right. Christ is sacrificed. And, of course, you can't go to Mass until you do what? Go to confession, penance. All of those sacraments are required to be in right standing with God. And uh, so, anyways. So that's around, it's in the 1200s. That's when it formally, that's when sacramentalism formally was a part of the church. And, by the way, that's when you started to see the reaction of the, you know, morning stars of the Reformation, guys like Wycliffe and Savernola, John Huss. Uh, these guys were reacting uh, to this. And um, so, so when, go when ahead, think, so Gordon. When you think about the uh, Catholics and Protestants together, there was a, you know, where I think R.C. Sproul and did, refused to sign the uh, document. Yes. And along with but MacArthur, I'm sure. Oh, yes. And Charles Colson, you know, there's some pretty respected J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer, I believe, signed it. Yeah, a lot of guys signed it, yeah. I'm just curious. I just don't think they are. You don't think they are? I think it's misnomer, you know. The the problem is, would a Catholic, would a good Catholic say that we're saved only by grace? Yes. Would a good Catholic say, are we saved solely on the merits of Christ? Yes. The difference comes in as to how those merits are conferred to the sinner. And that's 
And that's the difference. So, you know, they were trying to be united for social reasons, you know, so we could stand together against abortion and some of the other things. I appreciated what they're doing, even standing with the Mormons for those reasons. I don't have a problem with. Those are civil kinds of things, and they're important issues. But I just think the document was mis mistitled. <laughs> We're not standing together, uh, and uh, uh, so for what it's worth. All right. Well, that allegorical idea continued throughout Roman Catholicism. So that when, when Luther and especially Calvin hit the scene, the whole humanist movement was going back to original sources. You know, we, they were writing Greek and Hebrew grammars because we were going back and we were trying to figure out what's the original documents actually say. Because by that time, you may know that the Latin's Bible was, or the, the Roman Catholic Bible was in Latin. Jerome translated in, in Latin. It's a good translation, but that wasn't what it was originally written in. So they started going back. They started working the territory. You may know that Luther's 95 Theses was a, really a protest against indulgences, but there was also a lot in there about repentance. The first four Theses are all about repentance because Luther had gone back to the Greek text and saw that repentance was not uh, a sacrament. It wasn't penance. It was a lifestyle of repentance. In fact, the first thesis, all of life is repentance. We're repenting through all of life. It's not this, you know, one time go and, and, and do penance. And so, but the allegorical approach to Scripture was still very much in play. And the reformers pushed back against it, particularly Calvin. And I highlight Calvin because between Calvin and Luther, Calvin really carried the day because he was a systematic guy and he wrote things down very systematically. Few guys both comment expositorily on the Bible and write systematic theologies. That's a rare combination of guys. In fact, in our day and age, they kind of fight against each other. The biblical theologians don't like the systematic guys, and the systematic guys don't like the biblical guys. But Calvin was the whole package. So his hermeneutic really ruled the day. And you can see that I've listed that as historical grammatical. In other words, we want to really understand the history and the geography, the political climate of the Bible, and we want to be serious students of the grammar. And that hermeneutic really comes to us, particularly from Calvin. He's not unique, but he's the guy that insisted on it. He wrote commentaries on nearly every book of the Bible. Of course, his institutes are his systematic framework uh, governing his interpretation. It, this guy was a monster. He was a beast. Um, it's hard to imagine how he could have produced all of that, you know, with the tools that they had back in those days. Well, a reaction to that came with liberalism and Schleiermacher, and instead of historical grammatical, you get historical critical. Does anybody want to venture a guess at what historical critical means? I just look at it as 
Well, I think that's the upshot of it, Brandon. Brandon says doubting everything. It, it, it's critical. And it's critical of all sorts of historical things that we would just take for granted. For instance, one of the ideas that, that just pervaded and pervades historical critical guys is a severe doubting of the supernatural. So you can see this really affects interpretation, like when you're interpreting Jonah. You've got some real problems there, because it's like, well, we know fish don't eat people, and then spit them back up. We just know that. You can see where it causes huge questions with creation. It causes huge questions with the, re with the, with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you come in and your critical ideas essentially diminish miracles, uh, even to the point of just denying them flat out. Strauss and, 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 and uh, the Tubigan School, that's going to have a profound impact on your interpretation of the Bible. And uh, so that, that school is alive and well, although I tend to think that it's, it's dying a slow death, uh, as evidenced by the churches that espouse it. What happens to those churches? They close. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to hear their message. There's no attraction whatsoever. And denominations continue. You know, United Methodist, that's two denominations, the Methodist Church and I think United Brethren. Whenever you see mergers in denominations, it's always a sign of trouble. Mm -hmm. They don't have enough money. They don't have enough staff. Um, it's a desperate move. It's not a positive move. It's not like we just all decide to get together with Kumbaya. No. It's, it's failure that promotes that. And the problem is this message doesn't preach. The churches that are growing are conservative churches. You know, when I planted Christ Memorial Church back in the 90s, a woman called me up. It was probably the second year of the church. And she had a little attitude, and she said, is, is this a hellfire and brimstone church? And... I was pretty sure I didn't have a real shot at this gal. I didn't know who she was. If she'd come, I didn't meet her. And I said, ma'am, you know what? Is there any other kind? And the answer is no. And those are the churches that are growing, the churches that aren't afraid to preach these doctrines that the liberal gang has just refuted. Um, and in fact, that all came to a head. These two different strains came to a head in the fundamentalist uh, modernist controversy. Does that phrase ring a bell in anyone's mind? The fundamentalist modernist controversy. How many of you uh, know about the Scopes monkey trial? Okay, that was in the 20s, the 1920s. And that kind of came to a head because the teaching of evolution in the, I think it was Tennessee, in the Tennessee school district was against the law. So I think the ACLU propped up this one biology teacher and got him to, to teach evolution to force this thing to come to a head. Um, and uh, it really represented the ma massive schism between modernists who largely embraced historical critical theories of interpretation uh, and fundamentalists, which everybody was a fundamentalist who wasn't a modernist. That split with evangelical would occur later in the 40s. 
but there were two camps. And the two denominations that particularly got hit by that split were Baptists, Northern Baptists, and Northern Presbyterians. Um, they're the, the two groups that had the most theology. Methodists were untouched because they're just not very theologically driven. But now they're splitting over ethical issues. Not over theological issues per se, but over the outworking of the differences in theology, particularly the homosexual movement. So the, the fundamentalist movement linked arms, I think a little unknowingly, with dispensationalism. And that produced a particular hermeneutic. Now, by the way, when I say dispensationalism, what's the essential characteristic of dispensationalism? Don't say there's different dispensations. Everybody believes in at least two, the Old Testament and the New Testament. So how many we're talking about is not particularly relevant. What's the essential characteristic of dispensational theology? And I, I went to Dallas Seminary for four of my years of seminary. I graduated from Westminster Seminary. There was an awful lot that I benefited from there. But it is the flagship dispensational seminary as far as American Christianity is concerned. What's the hallmark of dispensationalism? Literal, that's right. But interpretively, it would be a rigid reaction to anything that was allegorical. Because what were the liberal guys doing? Making everything allegorical. Making everything allegorical. So was there a real Adam? No. Adam was just, it's kind of like it's all Aesop's fables. There's lessons to be learned but the historicity is just completely undermined. So the fundamentalists in league with dispensationalists, because dispensationalists were saying the Old Testament is the Old Testament and the New Testament is the New Testament. The promise to Abraham, according to a dispensational scheme, is going to be fulfilled when? In the millennium. That's right. The 70th week of Daniel, we've been on pause between weeks 69 and 70 for two millennia. That 70th week, any of you read the Left Behind series? Any of you see the movies Left Behind? Depicting the 70th week of Daniel, the great tribulation in their scheme, ushers in the completion of God's promises to Abraham. Those are literal promises for a nation and for land. And that literal idea was a bulwark against the liberal allegorizing. So it all got lumped together, even though probably the, the most uh, gifted of theologically of all the fundamentalists was a guy named J. Gresham Machen, who was the president of Westminster Seminary. Uh, I'm sorry. Was Machen the president? They didn't have a president back then, but he was the leader. Uh, and he was the founder, he, he, he along with some other guys. So he was not a dispensationalist. He would have thought that the promises to Abraham were fulfilled in whom? Christ. In fact, Galatians 3 says that. 
Now, the promises were given to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and two your seed, that is Christ. But dispensationalism with its reaction to liberalism and insistence that the Bible be taken liberally, literally skipped right over that and had all that fulfillment in the thousand-year millennium, which is still pre-new heavens, new earth, pre-trib and pre-millennial. Jesus comes before the millennium, and then at the end of the thousand years is when the final judgment takes place. So now we've got this strong, literal hermeneutic, um, even more literal than the Antiochian school way back in, in uh, Chrysostom's time, way back in Origen's time. And that hermeneutic has been extremely prevalent um, in your lifetime. Uh, we're very leery of anything that looks or smells allegorical. We're nervous about that. Now, there's a whole group of guys, um, and some of the maybe uh, uh, heavier weights would be guys like Sidney Gradonis, taught at Calvin Seminary, uh, Brian Chapel, the president and taught at Covenant Seminary, um, Graham Goldsworthy, who's Australian, I think, Anglican, taught at Moore's Theological Seminary, I think in Sydney. These guys have been huge promoters of not only the historical grammatical hermeneutic, which the literal hermeneutic would, they, they would say that's where they are. I think there's some differences because of the strong aversion to anything allegorical. But they've been promoters of what I'm calling an historical, grammatical, Christological hermeneutic. And this is what you're getting in this little book, where historical, we're looking at the text itself in its historical setting, and we're doing all of our grammatical work there, but then Christological, we're looking at its fulfillment in Christ. And only then are we going to its application to us. Um, some of the other names, Edmund Clowney, he was the first president at Westminster Seminary. Vern Poitras uh, is still there. I had him as a professor uh, for a couple of courses. Dennis Johnson, who was a uh, disciple of Clowney, kind of systematized his work. Dennis Johnson teaches, or he did teach, at Westminster West, Escondido, California. He wrote a book, Him We Proclaim, which is really a, systema a systematizing of all of Clowney's work. And then David King, who's also a Clowney Johnson disciple. This was his DMIM project at Southern Seminary. Um, short little book, but it's the same basic content. They're all pushing a historical, grammatical, Christological hermeneutic. They want to see how all the, the, the trajectories are fulfilled in Christ. Uh, how many of you got to read this book? Let's see if anyone did. By the way, do you know how to speed read through books? You learn this when you're in a PhD program. 
do you know how to do that? Can you do that? You, you, you're reading for what you don't know. And you're reading topic sentences of paragraphs. And if that topic sentence leaves you thinking, whew, I have no idea, then you, you, de you, you dive in a little bit more. But if generally you get the idea, you just move on. You move on. You move on. A book like this, you can read in an hour. If you're, if you're doing it. It's not fun reading, by the way. You know, if you want to just cozy up with a flower and, you know, some, some your favorite tea, a fire and your favorite tea, that's not what we're talking about. This is a very intense thing. But you can read a book like this easily in an hour. Um, you say, well, you can, Wes. We can't. I think you could. You would find that this... This is not that difficult to do. And when you're, when you're trying to do Edwards and you're using Sam Storms, I think you can do that. If you're trying to read Edwards, probably not. It probably isn't going to work. I'm going to really show my ignorance. Where do you even get a book like that? Is that in Christian books? Oh, yeah. You, all this can get, you can get on Amazon. Oh. Yeah. And same with these other books. Just, just Google it right to Amazon. I mean, I'm not very tech savvy. But these things just pop right up. So I probably erred in not just bringing 30 copies and, and, and just distributing them. So that's probably a bad thing. But if you'll accommodate that and get the other one, that'll be helpful. So I've taken that historical, grammatical, Christological hermeneutic and sort of come up with an outworking of that. I don't think it's different. It's just an outworking. I call it the death, burial, and resurrection hermeneutic. And if you look on your, you look on your page two, um, I want to just talk about that briefly. This is a way of looking at Scripture, the Old Testament particularly, that keeps Christ in the, in the foreground. And what I'm suggesting is that essentially the Bible is about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And I'm basing that on a couple of places. Go to Luke 24 if you have your Bibles. Now we're going to start going into workshop mode. Thank you for bearing with all that sort of hermeneutical stuff. I know it's a little it's a little tedious. But go to Luke chapter 24. And let's pick it up in verse 21. And we'll read through verse 27. Now you guys know the story generally, don't you? This is on the road to Emmaus. And uh, God has veiled Christ's identity or Christ veiled his own identity. So these two disciples, Cleopas and the other guy, don't recognize Jesus. And, you know, God does kind of have a sense of humor, doesn't he? I mean, this is quite the little ruse. You know, he's acting ig ignorant like he has no idea what's... And they're, they're chiding for it a little bit. You know, are you the only guy in town who doesn't know what's happened? I mean, I think that whole dialogue is kind of funny. And uh, he's like, no, tell me. And uh, so they explain to him, 
and the upshot is they think he's dead. That's the upshot. They're lamenting because he's dead. So let's pick it up in verse, what did I say? Um, 21. Yeah, why don't we, uh, let's just, why don't we just start, Logan, with you, and we'll just read as far as we need to to get to verse 27. No, just one verse each. Okay. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all these things, it is now the third day since these things have happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning. Go ahead. Um, they said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who told them Jesus is alive. So all those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the woman had said, but by him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures, in all the scriptures. It's that last verse in, in, in combination with Jesus' incredulity. He doesn't really cut these guys a break, does he? Does it almost seem to you like a little bit of a harsh response? These guys are lamenting. They obviously were devoted to Christ. They're lamenting his death. That's really the thing that's preeminent in their thinking. And Jesus critiques them. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, that's a remarkable statement right there. Because they've obviously missed the boat. Uh, they've been listening to synagogue sermons to use King's lingo. Um, and then verse 27. Uh, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the things, all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He interpreted in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He said in verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? That's death, burial, resurrection, ascension. I put resurrection and ascension all in kind of the same boat. And then in verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures. He interpreted them in all the scriptures of things concerning himself, which I take to be showing what was necessary in verse 26. That Christ should suffer and then enter into his glory. Now we have similar instructions. Jump down to verse um, 44. And they recognize him in the, in the eating of the fish and the bread. So let's pick it up wherever we were. Verse 44 to verse 49. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. 
and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. Mm-hmm. And that, rep- that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, of his name to all nations beginning with Jerusalem. Oh, sorry. Yeah, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. All right, again, I want you to notice um, that he says, It is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. He's opened all the scriptures to them. By the way, how was the Hebrew Bible divided? What were the three sections of the Hebrew Bible? The law, the prophets, and the writings. The law, the prophet, and the writings. And what was the most prominent writing? The Psalms. The Psalms. That's right. So that's really what he's saying. He's opened up all the scriptures, the law and the prophets and the writings of which the Psalms clearly were the most prominent. And he's showing them his death, burial, and resurrection. He's showing them that the law, the prophets, and the writings, the Psalms, have been fulfilled concerning his death, burial, and resurrection. So those two places in Luke are the main fuel for my DBR hermeneutic which I've then attempted to take and at least look at a few of the motifs in the Old Testament that could substantiate that claim. For instance, think about this question. When is Christ first proclaimed in the Old Testament? Where's the first gospel proclamation in the Old Testament? That's the most referenced one, but I think it's earlier, based on the New Testament. Okay, I think it's even earlier than Genesis 1.26. Okay, depending on whether you take that as a topic sentence or not. No, way before 12.3. I would say 1.3. And God said. At least ten times Genesis 1 says, And God said. And we know, without any fancy origin-like allegory, that that word is Jesus Christ. How do we know that? From John 1. That's right. John 1 makes it crystal clear that that word is Christ. And what's interesting is if you read Calvin's commentary on John 1, on Genesis 1, there'd only be one reference to that in very passing. And King would say it's close to a synagogue sermon. Because Genesis 1 is about the redemption of the earth. Notice what's the context in which light is created in John chapter 1 or in Genesis chapter 1 verse 3 
the earth was formless and void and darkness hovered over the face of the deep. That just screams death, does it not? Those are all metaphors for death and judgment. And what does the word do throughout Genesis chapter 1? Yes. Or we could say it redeems that formless, void, dark earth. It's a, it's a picture of the word redeeming, finally, the earth, the world, which is what happens when he comes and dies on the cross. Genesis 1 is a picture. It's a type of that. And to preach Genesis 1 accurately is to take it to the work of Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection. In fact, the world goes from this dead, lifeless form to this environment that's teeming with life. It's a beautiful resurrection story. So I think that gives credence to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I think the story of Abel and Seth Abel is killed by his brother Cain, but God provides Seth to take his place. There you've got a death, burial, resurrection motif. Noah's flood, my goodness. It's a recapitulation of creation, is it not? Uh, you're even given the commission again to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Mm -hmm. So you've got death. I mean, talk about death. The flood if you believe in a universal flood, as I do, the flood wiped out everything that breathes except those that were on the ark. And so there's a metaphorical resurrection that takes place because they don't die. You've got death, burial, and resurrection. The Old Testament books, you've got an ongoing death-to-life kind of a scenario. Think about the history of Israel. They're being judged, they're being judged, they're being judged, they're being judged, they're being judged. Death, 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 death. And then God renews the covenant. And there's life, there's hope. It's just, it's just the pattern of the Old Testament. But, wait, there's more. Because we don't have to just rely on these broad death, burial, resurrection motifs. There are, Jesus said... In Luke chapter 24, he said, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Where does it say that? In fact, when I was at Dallas Seminary with their literal hermeneutic, you know what they tried to do with this verse? They tried to say that that's referencing an earlier gospel reference or an earlier kerygma in the New Testament. They refused to take it back to the Old Testament. And the argument was, where does it say that? Well, that's one place. Where are you thinking, Brandon? Are you thinking Hosea 6? Good for you. Let's go to Hosea 6. Brandon is all over this. So Hosea is right after Daniel and Ezekiel, or Ezekiel and Daniel. Hosea 
Now Hosea is written is is a is a prophet in the northern tribe context related to the Assyrian captivity in 722 BC. Um, so why don't, Brandon, why don't you just read uh, the first uh, three verses? Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down, and He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up, that we may live before Him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. He is go- His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers. I'm looking at my handout, and I think I... Oh, no, there it is. Okay, there it is, Hosea 6.2. Now, we're talking about the nation of Israel being raised up in three days. Now, I'm sure you know that that didn't happen, literally. That, you know, they weren't, cap, they weren't captured by Assyria, you know, on March the 2nd, 722 B.C., and on March the 5th, Voila, they're free. It's a, it's a metaphorical reference, but three days. No doubt Jesus was referring to that. You could really see their whole history in terms of death, burial, and resurrection, could you not? And here we have a three-day reference. Other. So now what we're doing is we're dealing with typology. We're not dealing with propositional prophecy. We're dealing with typological prophecy shadows and types we know jonah is the quintessential sign it's not propositional is it but it's prophecy nonetheless that whole scenario with jonah that little pericope of jonah being inside the belly of the fish and being vomited out is a three-day motif and as a result jesus leans on it and says that's a prediction i fulfill that what else other ones, three day. I've got some down there, but maybe you just know some of your own. I've never noticed it till now. Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. There you go. On the third day. There's a death, burial. And we know from Hebrews chapter 4 that Isaac was, re- was, was restored as a type. It was a metaphorical resurrection. That's what Hebrews says. Or do you know that verse? Let's go to Hebrews 11. I don't, want, I don't want you just taking my word for it. We are going to go till about 7.30 tonight, so I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I mean, we could really have fun with this. Now we're, now we're starting to cook with gas. All right, Hebrews chapter 11. If someone finds the verse before I get there, just go ahead and read it. It's around verse 17, I think. Yeah, it is verse 17. Anybody want to read that? By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. Keep going. Of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. You considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive the Yeah, figuratively speaking. So there's a typological, there's a metaphorical resurrection there. He didn't actually kill him. He was poised to kill him. He didn't kill him. And the, the writers of the New Testament see that as a metaphorical resurrection. 
And it happened on the third day. Genesis, now you've already, see, you've already got a, a, a trajectory for your Genesis 22 assignment. Thanks to, what is your name, sir? Baylor. Baylor. Yeah, thanks to, thanks to, Baylor or Bailey? Baylor. Baylor. Okay. Oh, spelled the same way? E-R, but. E-R, okay. All right. Yeah, thanks to Baylor, you've already got a, you've already got one. And if you read through Genesis 22, they'll start popping out. It just gets fun. Uh, and you read Calvin on Genesis 22 and you just want to weep. You just want to weep. Nothing. Zero. Zilch. Um, okay, other three-day scenarios. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit here. When did God appear to the nation of Israel on Mount Sinai? On the third day. God appeared. Jesus' resurrection is the appearance of God. God appeared on the third day when Jesus rose from the dead. That's, that's death, burial, resurrection kind of language. Hezekiah. Uh, Hezekiah is kind of a favorite uh, for me, because when I got diagnosed with cancer, I started praying Hezekiah's prayer. Not because I particularly want to live 15 more years, mm -hmm. but uh, there's stuff I'm trying to get done relative to nets that I think I need more time. Now, my wife, that's actually caused marital problems because she's mad at me for only praying for 15 years. And uh, so she's trying to pray against me. Uh, but when was Hezekiah healed? Your best guess. That's a pretty good... We, we ought to look at that. Let's go to 2 Kings. See, you miss these details, don't you? Just skipping along and three, third. You get your, you get your lexicon and just start going through three and third, and you're going to be amazed at how often that number pops up. And Jesus said... Let me show you in the law and the prophets and the Psalms how my death and resurrection on the third day was predicted and thus now has been fulfilled. Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, started that process. So, where are we going? 2 Kings 20. Does anybody have that? Why don't you just read it? 2 Kings 20, 1 to 6. What's your name, sir? Josh. Josh, okay. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a full heart, and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And before Isaiah had gone out in the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add fifteen years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Yeah, nice little microcosm of death, burial, and resurrection. You got the whole nation of Israel, death, burial, and resurrection spoken of in a three-day construct. 
And now you get little Isaiah's, uh, little Hezekiah's life. And God said, put your house in order. Like, you're dead. Put your house in order. We're done here. Hezekiah prays. And God says, on the third day, I'm going to restore you and give you 15 more years. It's clearly a typological prophecy that's designed to take us to Christ. Um, what else? We've got Jonah. Well, just the, uh, not that I know of, Brandon, except the appearance at Sinai is the third day. I like the one in, about Benjamin. Do you remember the, the story about Benjamin in that, you know, that Awana favorite book, Judges? Uh, do, do, do the kids memorize any verses out of the book of Judges? I mean, it's a, it's a pretty depressing book, you know, and of course, how's it end? You know, there was no king in Israel and Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Sounds like America. Uh, what happened with Benjamin? Does anybody remember the story with Benjamin? So the Levite takes his concubine up, up there, and uh, Benjamin has become like Sodom and Gomorrah, and they want to have relations with the Levite. And, I mean, the whole story... It's just one of those stories that you kind of just have to accept this is what the Bible says. So they, they refuse to give him the Levite, but they take his concubine, and they ravish her. Um, and the next day, to highlight how egregious what they did was, they cut her up into pieces, and they send her parts to the tribes so that the tribes will be empowered, infuriated to come and destroy, annihilate Benjamin. Um, of course, Benjamin against the other 11 tribes, there's no chance. And yet, and it's a third day motif, Benjamin is spared. They leave 600 Benjamites, Benjaminites, Benjaminites. And then they, they find some women from somewhere, I can't remember the details. They're like, hey, you guys can start reproducing. And they bring them all together, and the tribe of Benjamin is saved. And who was a Benjaminite? Oh. Well, Saul. Who else? Which Saul are you referring to? Yes. Who else? Paul the Apostle. Yeah, Saul, Saul, who became Paul, was a Benjaminite. I'm pretty glad that they resurrected Benjamin, and it's in a third-day motif. So that story is a beautiful death, burial, and resurrection of, of Benjamin. And the, the widow's son, Elijah, how, how is that widow's son resurrected? He's dead physically. What does Elijah do to him? Bows on him three times. Yes. Kind of lays on him three times. Hello, you know, and then boom. He's resurrected. He's resuscitated. So I'm trying to just get you to see that the death, burial, resurrection motif, it, it governs the entire Old Testament. And again, if you think about Israel, God creates Israel, and immediately when Israel uh, 
receives the covenant, immediately Israel starts dying, doesn't it? Because it breaks covenant, and God judges that whole first generation. Hebrews 3 and 4 say that whole first generation was lost. They did not believe the gospel. Uh, and God laid them low in the wilderness, Hebrews 3 says, because of their unbelief. But he raises up the second generation. As far as I can tell from the study of, uh, of the Old Testament, the second generation, the generation under Joshua, was the only believing generation. I'm not saying there wasn't a remnant always in the history of Israel, but as far as a generation, only that generation, as far as I can tell, based on Joshua 24, and it's certified again in Judges chapter 2, actually kept covenant. They actually believed the gospel. And after that, the death cycle just continues. I mean, what's judges? It's just one continual judgment, isn't it? And these judges are raised up to save Israel from its, from its sins and from its death, but then they immediately uh, return to their vomit, and it just goes on and on. And all the way through, it just keeps getting worse. There's some high spots with David, and for a little while with Solomon. Um, but the whole thrust is that it's headed, it's headed south. And in fact, if you look at 2 Kings 21, I've got my ESV Bible. I'm a New American Standard guy, but Logan won't let me preach out of that Bible. So I bring this other one where I can't find anything. Um, um, Where is that? Yes, yeah, so let me read in verse 14. Here's God's promise to destroy the nation. This is Judah. And we're looking at the Babylonian captivity. Verse 14, And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies, because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger, since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. There's the history of Israel. It's, an, it's, a, it's, a, it's a legacy of sin and death. Of sin and death. And what's being promised? What's being promised? Behold, days are coming. Jeremiah, behold, days are coming. The restoration is promised. And yet we know that's not the restoration, right? It's not the restoration. In fact, how would you compare the temple that they bought, that they built in the days of, of, uh, of Ezra uh, and Zerubbabel compared to the temple of Solomon? And Haggai, how did they respond when they saw that new temple, the restored temple? They wept, which is part of what's reminding us that the days aren't here yet. That's still a typological restoration, but nevertheless, it's a typological restoration of the nation of Israel. It's a typological resurrection, and it's pointing to the true resurrection uh, of Jesus Christ. Um, so the entire history of the Old Testament is a history of death, burial, and resurrection. It just keeps happening. It happens in a micro-realm, in individuals' lives, in a certain period of Israel's lives, and it happens in a macro realm um, with the whole thrust 
culminating with the Babylonian captivity. That is the, the ultimate death after the flood. Um, and then there's a resurrection. So you can see, if I'm reading my Old Testament correctly, if I'm reading my Old Testament correctly, I can't get away from Jesus Christ. Because I can't get away from death, burial, resurrection motifs. And in fact, we're doing great. Um, go to Psalms. Now, I'm going to make a recommendation here. I think I made this the last time, but it's, it, it's worth repeating. It's a toss-up in my mind between the ESV Study Bible and the Spirit of the Reformation Study Bible. They're both excellent study Bibles. But I, I give the nod... The, 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 Reformation, or the spirit of the Reformation Study Bible has a section in the introduction to each of the books um, titled Christ in this book. And those are very helpful. But what I like about the ESV Study Bible is that Vern Poitras, who teaches at Westminster Seminary and has a very robust Christological hermeneutic, wrote a commentary... It's, and it's on many, many of the verses throughout the entire Old Testament to show how those verses point to Christ. Now, the problem with the ESV study Bible is you have to be Arnold Schwarzenegger to carry that thing around. Um, it, is, it, 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 it is a boat anchor. And, and Poitras' commentary is in the very back. So, you know, you're reading along, then you've got to flip all the way to the back. I mean, we're, we're such troubled people, aren't we? Oh, I had to flip to the back of the Bible. But it, it is a disincentive to really look at Poitras' comments. But if you get it on the Kindle or a Nook or any other kind of reader, if you, get, if you get a Kindle app for your iPad, there's just a little carrot by all the verses. You just, boom, takes you right back, back, you're right back. And it's especially rich in the Psalms. So let me, uh, let me find a psalm here. How about Psalm 63? And I'd like to suggest that though this is a psalm of David and we don't really know the historical context, that ultimately this would be an example of a psalm that Jesus would have prayed and applied to himself. Listen to the motifs and I think you'll hear it. O oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. It's not for Baptists. Uh, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. This is a, a good verse for senior citizens who have trouble sleeping. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of the liars will be stopped. 
See, when I read that, yes, I know that was David, and David was a persecuted king. He was a persecuted king. He was hiding out, uh, hiding in caves. He was a fugitive, and all the rabble came to him. It was a miserable existence. But the real king that we're talking about here is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one ultimately who was hunted. He's the one ultimately who was persecuted. And he was the one that was crying out to the Lord that the Lord would deliver him. What does Hebrews 5 say? In the days of his flesh, I said it today during the sermon, in the days of his flesh, he, he, with, uh, uh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. Uh, where's, I thought there was a crying in there. Maybe I missed it. Um, but that's a common motif. I'm crying out to you for deliverance. I need you to deliver me. Jesus was crying out to the Father to deliver him from death. He, he wasn't like, hey, I got this. Everything's cool. You know, I am the second person of the Trinity after all, and I have authority to lay down my life, and I have authority to take it up again. Nobody can, can, can touch me. That wasn't his mindset. He was a man. He prayed three times that God would remove the cross three times he prayed. And the Psalms are filled with that kind of lament feel. And so when I read this, you know what I see? I see how my Savior related to the Father. That's what I see, not just David. I mean, I love David, but he's a dead white guy. Who cares really about him? Who really cares about him? I don't care about him. I care about who David typifies. And he typifies my Savior. And so I'm getting, you know what I'm getting? I'm getting Jesus' diary here. That's what I'm getting. I get to read his diary. I get to read his journal. How he approached God. How he begged God for deliverance. And how he rejoiced in God. Because God delivered him. You know, Jesus is our worship leader, isn't he? He's the one praising God in the congregation because he's experienced the deliverance that he's going to grant for us. And we're called to follow him. So I'm encouraging you to really step back and seriously think about how you're approaching, especially the Old Testament, and not just reading it as history, uh, as inerrant history for the Jews, but reading it with the gospel lens that Jesus has given us the right to put on it. And I'm suggesting, particularly seeing it portraying your Savior, who came, was born, came to die, you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who shall save his people from their sins. He was born to die. He set his face like a flint. He died, he was buried, and on the third day he rose again from the dead and now sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's what it's trying to get us to look at. We're not adding that to it. We're simply piggybacking off the way Jesus interpreted. We're piggybacking off the way the apostles who sat at Jesus' feet interpreted it. And they didn't pull... Things out of context, you know, it's, it's not like don't do this at home, kids, 
Only apostles are allowed to do what they did to the book, to the Old Testament. No, no. They were rightly interpreting it. You know, when Matthew 2 says, out of Egypt I have called my son, and applies Hosea 11.1, which was clearly talking about the Exodus, applies it to Jesus as a baby coming back from Egypt, they were rightly interpreting that verse. They weren't just saying, well, hey, here's a cool verse that I think I can apply. No, Matthew's stock formula. This was this was this happened in order to fulfill what what the prophet Hosea said. In order to fulfill plerao, in order to fulfill what was written. The seed for that was in that original historical event, and it fully flowered and blossomed in the life of Jesus Christ. And now I'm gazing at my Savior. Wherever I'm at in the Bible, wherever Logan preaches in the Bible, I'm gazing at my Savior. That's who I want to see. Because as I behold the glory of the Lord, I'm transformed into his image. So I want to be seeing him, and I want to show others that this is about Jesus. And I'll tell you what. I have five kids, 17 grandkids. Now, I don't touch Rick over here with 35 grandkids. <laughs> but I got plenty, and they're all under age 12. And there's not, a, there's not a one of them, I don't know if any of them, well, one of them has been baptized. Um, that's maybe the only one that's saved. They're all well-churched kids. Their parents are trying to teach them the gospel. There's not a one of them that I can't take any number of Old Testament stories and say, hey, kids, how about if I read this to you? And they'll say, okay, Grandpa. And now I'm talking to them. I'm reading David and Goliath, a perennial favorite. But what am I really telling them about? Not about David and how he killed Goliath per se, but I'm talking about the greater of David, who, again, without any weapons, so to speak, because the sling is not really regarded as a weapon. David went in without armor, with no sword. In fact, he cut off Goliath's head with Goliath's sword. We've got the greater than David, who defeats the greater than Goliath. Not just a seed of the serpent, but the serpent himself, when he hangs on the cross and crushes his head. And, you know, my kids, my grandkids are all like, Grandpa, where's that picture where his head's cut off? That's, the girls are saying the same thing, not just the boys. The girls are like, read that story again. And, and like, I'll, I'll read this story as many times as you like because I can tell you about Jesus as many times as you like. And did you know it was promised way back in Genesis 3 that he would crush the serpent's head? And that's what Goliath's head separated from his body is meant to typify. So now you've got this rich gospel. Everybody loves a story. So now, ministry-wise, we're telling stories. Everybody wants to hear a story. And the story resolves itself in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the most thrilling ending of all the stories. So uh, now a couple of things here. We've got just 15 minutes. I want to just tell you what you got. I took a stab uh, at interpreting Genesis uh, through this gospel lens. And uh, you can look at that. You can muse on that. 
Um, I've been very careful to stay true to the historical, grammatical meaning of the text. This is a very uh, careful attempt to follow the flow of the text, but it's all framed under the notion of seed. In fact, you see my theme. I say God promises. Did you find that in your handout there? Uh, the Gospel of Genesis. It's two pages there. God promises that the seed of the woman will ultimately have a great name and become a great nation through his covenant with Abraham in order to establish, reestablish his glorious kingdom. So I'm suggesting it's all about the seed of the woman. It's all about the seed of the woman. We're getting to the seed. It's all about Christ. And that's just an attempt to show you how you would do biblical exegesis with this hermeneutic, this historical, grammatical, Christological hermeneutic, uh, or death, burial, and resurrection hermeneutic. Um, and go back to my. And I thought we could just take a minute to play with Genesis two and Genesis three, and see what trajectories. If you use the death, burial, resurrection hermeneutic. Um, how might you take Genesis 2? We've got to first get the historical in place. We can't just rush to Christ. We've got to first historically get a handle on it. Let's take Genesis 2. What are the salient features of Genesis 2? Creation of man. Okay, the creation of man. God rests. God rests. Now, we probably, yeah, and that would be the end. If you look at Genesis, it's, built, it's developed on these histories which I've preserved in the, these are the histories, these are the generations, ten times it says that. Uh, but what else in Genesis 2? God rests, that's a, that's a clear one. The creation of man, by the way, how, how does he create man? Man, sexual man, here. Not man, uh, generic man, but sexual man is in Genesis 2. How does he create Adam? Out of the dust of the ground and breathing life. Yes, so somewhere along the line, what do you have before he finally breathes life and in, in, in the breath of life into his nostrils? What do you have there? Yeah, you've kind of got a corpse, don't you? You've got a body. The body's formed from the dust of the earth, but it's not alive. And he breathes life. In, into Adam. It's kind of a resurrection, isn't it? He was dead, and now he's alive. What else do you have in Genesis 2? All right. Yeah, you've, you've got, again, you've got some explicit New Testament certification from Genesis 2. What is it? Related to Eve. Ephesians 5. The, what's, what's the last two verses of Genesis 2 say? Can someone read it? Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Yeah. So that verse is quoted in Ephesians 5. 
31. Somebody want to read Ephesians 5, 31, and then read verse 32. Seemingly in the context of marriage, but not really. Not ultimately. Ephesians 5, 31, 32. Ephesians 5, 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay, that's right out of Genesis 2. In verse 32. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Ooh. And this is the most detailed passage on marriage in the Bible. I mean, Colossians gets one verse. But what is this passage really about according to what Paul said? Christ in the church. So if I'm preaching Genesis 2, I got to be aware that the creation of Adam and Eve and their coming together to be one flesh as husband and wife is really but a type. It's not really about marriage per se at all. Marriage is just a type. It's a temporary type. There's no marriage in heaven. Um, it really points to the relationship between Christ and the church. And by the way, how was Eve created? Out of the rib of Adam. What happened for Adam to be able to donate his rib to the cause? Ooh. So Adam was put to sleep. Hint, 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 hint. And then after his rib was extracted, what happened? New life. Yes, there's all kinds of cool things happening here. Number one, he comes alive. So there's kind of a death, burial, resurrection motif there. Number two, Eve is created. It's not hard to see the connection that Christ died not only was he resurrected, but the church was created through his death, burial, and resurrection. So now we're in Genesis 2, starting with the rest motif, which we know that Jesus, not David or Solomon, ultimately gives rest. Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We rest from our works, Hebrews 4 said, just like God did. So we're, we're preaching the gospel there. We're preaching death, burial, and resurrection with Adam's creation. We're preaching death, burial, and resurrection with Eve's creation. We're, cre we're preaching the creation of the church through that sacrifice. I mean, it's just all over the place. How about Genesis 3? What happens in Genesis 3? Okay, the fall. If you were going to preach Christ from Genesis 3, big idea, where might you go? Again, we're trying to look at New Testament trajectories. It's always particularly helpful if there's explicit verses or passages, but it's not required because the, the New Testament is only one-third of our Bible, and, and they just have a sampling, but they give us the pattern. Now, in this case, we've got... Very, very good information. 3.15. Okay, 3.15 is a good one because we know that Satan uh, is ultimately crushed by Christ. 
How about with Adam? Can anyone think of any New Testament passages that link Adam to Christ? Yes, Romans 5. In fact, let's go there, Brandon. Romans chapter 5. See, I'm talking about you're teaching your kids. You're maybe teaching a Sunday school. You're just reading it for your own edification. If you're not going to Christ, you're preaching synagogue sermons, is what David King says. They might be about God, but they're not really about what God wants you to get from it. What did, what did we say, Romans 5? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, uh, Baylor, why don't you read that? Verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law... Do you want to keep reading? Yeah, keep going. Uh, for until the law, sin was in the world. But, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Whoa, look at that one. Major League New Testament certification. I mean, even Dallas Seminary, that is very leery of any allegory, would allow that to be a type. Because it says Adam was a type. And of course, Romans 5 fleshes that out, right? By the disobedience of the one the many were made sinners. By the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So if I'm preaching Genesis 3, when we get to Romans 5, is Paul teaching about Adamic solidarity? Or is he using it as a pivot point to talk about union with Christ? A or B? B. Now, because we're so theologically illiterate, when we're preaching it in our churches, we have to start from the very beginning because they didn't get that. So we've got to talk about the imputation of sin. But Adam, but Paul is assuming it. And he's saying, to try to understand what happened in justification, it's just like what happened when Adam sinned. It's the same construct. The one represents the many. Um, so when we're preaching Genesis 3... That's ultimately, even Adam, the one through whom sin came, points us to Christ because he acted in a representative capacity. You can't even read Genesis 3, like the most depressing chapter in the whole Bible. You can't read Genesis 3 biblically without ultimately going to Christ because Adam is a type of the one who was to come. Well, I'm trying to just give you some some categories, because I'm expecting you to hit a home run on this Genesis 22 assignment. Let me close with this. Yes, uh, Jordan? I have a question. Could you say that the tree of life would be a type as well? Or does that, would that fall under the term? Oh, no, I think, I think it is. I mean, life. Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. The tree depicts that. And thus we see it in Revelation chapter 22. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think... In a broad sense, yes. So, how about in ministry? Well, I've already said some things about using these stories in your ministry with your kids in Sunday school. Um, I'm guessing that many of you teach in the Sunday school system here with the kids. Maybe not. I don't know how it all works. But 
there's plenty of opportunity. You know, kids are great. They'll listen to anybody. You don't have to be particularly articulate. You don't have to smell very good. Um, kids are so accepting. And boy, oh boy, you can evangelize them. I take my grandkids all over the place, and I just preach at them the whole time we're in the car. But I do it through saying, hey, who knows this story? And they're like, we do, we do. Well, tell me about it. Then they tell us about it, and then we talk about its fulfillment in Christ. So this whole, this whole approach is such a helpful way to minister to people, whatever realm you're in, because we're, we're understanding the gospel. We've already talked about its value for holiness. My problem is I don't see Jesus clearly. That's, you say, well, is that your only problem, Wes? No, it's not my only problem, but it's my biggest problem. I don't see Jesus clearly. Sin's presence has me looking through a glass darkly. A day will come when I will finally see him as he is, and I'll be like him because of it. But in the meantime, I'm a little bit, you and I are a little bit groping in the darkness. And everything we can do, every muscle that we can strain so we can see Jesus more clearly facilitates our growth in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this orientation is the very best thing that you can do for your spiritual life. And of course what happens, the clearer your vision of Jesus is, the clearer your sin becomes. So it just shines a spotlight on your sin and helps us to turn from those things that are displeasing to the Lord. The clearer we see Christ, the clearer we see our sin, the more repenting we can do. Luther said our whole life is a life of repentance. That's right. We're seeing our sin. Lord, help me. I don't want to, I don't want to continue in that particular sin. Lord, deal with this one at the heart. Help me to rip it out so that it's not plaguing me. Um, and then finally, think about all the, the counseling opportunities that you have both formal and informal most of them probably informal most of mine are informal and I have a lot of formal opportunities to counsel think of how being Christ-centered Christocentric helps you helps you you know you you got high school kids taking biology and you know they're they're getting the whole nine yards about evolution and all that and I'm just following Jesus. I'm just looking at what Jesus said about Genesis. And Jesus has no trouble certifying that Genesis happened the way we normally read Genesis. We don't have to get too fancy. We don't have to come up with framework hypotheses and all these things. I mean, I'm a Westminster Confession guy when it comes to creation. Six days, that's, that's how I see it. But all of this fancy kind of stuff... I can just say, this is what Jesus said. I just hide behind Jesus. I know what he said, and I, and I say, that's the authority, and we can tackle these hard things. We can tackle marriage and, and divorce, because Jesus weighed in on those things, and he certified what was said in the Old Testament. Um, how about marriage and family? Again, Jesus is, is, is the key. You know, Jesus is the one that said regarding his parents, his mother and his brothers and sisters, you know, the ones who do the will of God, Jesus said. These 
are my brothers and sisters and mother. So now when I'm dealing with a reactionary Christian uh, church who wants to circle the wagons of their family and have that be the defining unit, you know, kind of a Vodibachum kind of orientation. And I like Vodibachum, but I don't like the family-centered church. Because who are my mother and brothers and sisters? Ultimately, this group I've got around me with my five kids and their spouses, they're all married, my wife, 17 grandkids, I love them dearly. But it's the ones who do the will of God that are truly my family. See, that's a church-focused orientation. I got a lot of unbelieving grandkids. Well, I pray that God would be gracious and save them, but you're my family, and I'm your family. See, Jesus was crystal clear on that. I want to I follow Jesus on that. And even with marriage, when we, when we go through premarital counseling, we, we say, look, your first brother and sister, this marriage, this marriage deal is temporary. You were brother and sister before you got married, and you'll be brother and sister in heaven forever. Um, and probably one of you will predecease the other, and then you'll, you'll just be brother, or you'll just be sister. This marriage is a temporary construct. So let's not overbake it. Let's be clear that first and foremost, your brother and sister trying to help one another get into heaven. Yeah, there's roles. I'm not, I'm not in any way uh, flagging on complementarianism, but... Those are temporary roles like in a play so that people can see Christ as the head of the church and the church submitting to Christ. And when we get to heaven, we're not going to have those kind of roles, at least as I understand it. So I'm listening to Jesus tell me about our relationships or government. You know, the whole COVID thing, the whole, you know, Trump thing, all of that stuff, I look at Jesus and I see Jesus really not getting engaged like that. And I don't see the apostles either. I see all of them crystal clear on the mission of the church. And they're not making a deal about those kinds of things. You know, maybe Jesus would have said, face masks we'll have with us always. I think that we get wrapped up in the wrong things because we've taken our eyes off Jesus. Jesus, boy, could you imagine all the ills of the Roman government that Jesus could have torn into? I mean, the Roman Caesars, they thought they were gods. There were shrines set up to worship these guys. Jesus didn't have anything to say about it. He said, you know, the inscription on the coin, who is that? That's Caesars. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesars and render to God the things that are God. No trouble. No problem. I think we listen to Jesus. We can counsel people with these things. And then, of course, all things related to body life. I think as we're listening to Jesus and we're listening to the apostles, we would cut each other a whole lot more slack. Because most of the things that we differ on are preferential matters. They're not really right or wrong kinds of things. Maybe some of you are teetotalers in here. And you have a right to that. And others, you're like Martin Luther and you have a beer with your quiet time every morning. You know, neither of those are right or wrong. They're just different. And we look at Jesus and we recognize he's given us that freedom to be different. Those are some of the practical realms. 
Well, you've hung in there wonderfully. I've run over by seven minutes. But can I pray for us? And, uh, thanks for your attention. I hope you were encouraged by some of this. Father, thank you. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he is the Alpha, the Omega. That he was dead. And now he's alive. And he has the keys to death and Hades. And thank you, Father, that he was worthy to open the book, the scroll, and that things are playing out as he sits at your right hand, upholding all things by the word of his power right now. And we thank you that he's coming back. And we don't want to be like the unprepared steward not tending to that which the master has put in our care. Lord, let us guard this gospel, this good news that Jesus died on the cross according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Let us guard it and let us proclaim it and let us be about the business of plundering the enemy's house, his camp, let us be about the business of seeing the knowledge of the glory of the Lord cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. We thank you for this wonderful mission you've given us. And we pray that you'd give us grace to be good soldiers, good farmers in your field. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We'll see you in, in a month, hopefully. You're welcome. Please just call me Wes.